Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm going to start off this morning by asking you a strange question. How many of you in here are middle children? Anybody? Oh, a couple. Wow, okay. How many are firstborn? Wow. And how many youngest babies out there? Okay, quite a few. Same as in the first service, though, a lot of firstborns. Genesis is like a type A <laughs> congregation, I think. Wow. Well, I have to uh, confess, I'm a firstborn too, right? No surprise then with this crew. Um, so the reason, we're going to talk about Aaron today, and Aaron was a middle child. And uh, so as we look at Aaron and, you know, see his life and what he accomplished, and you'll find if you're a middle child that uh, there's hope for you. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron worked it out. He did. He really did um, with some challenges. But so one of the things, the reason I'm asking the question, too, is it's interesting to look at birth order. You know, we all took Psych 101 in school or in high school. You know, we've, we've, we learned a little bit. You see about birth order. And there's a sort of general characterization of birth order providing certain characteristics, such as, let's take a look at the oldest up here on the, up should be on the screen. The oldest uh, children tend to be more confident determined, tend to be born leaders, organized, eager to please, and they like to avoid trouble, and they also tend to be perfectionists. And what's always on the mind of the firstborn is, why does everything always fall on me? I have to do everything. The middle child tends to be more easygoing, roll with the punches kind of person, the middle kids, you know, being sandwiched between, they tend to see both sides of what's happening. They tend to be good negotiators because of that. And one of the traits that comes through this of middle children is that they tend to be fiercely loyal. But in spite of all that, the things that the middle children tend to say to themselves is, why do I always feel like I'm in the shadow of my older brother or sister? And the baby of the family, oddly enough, tends to be persistent. That's because they're used to getting their own way. They tend to be storytellers or the class clown. They also tend to be very affectionate. And what goes through the mind of the baby is, nobody pays attention to me. They're the last kid. Been there, done that, right? So that's, that's what they have to deal with. An only child, a little different, different even than the firstborn, tends to be confident, to pay a lot of attention to details, tend to be a strong academic possessive, perfectionist, overly critical. Sorry, only children out there. Um, what goes through the only children's mind is, I could have done better. I could have done better. I'm the oldest of three. Um, I not really, I wouldn't say I'm an overachiever, but I kind of head in that direction. Um, I like to have all my ducks in a row. I like to be organized. Um, I'm an engineer by background. I like to solve problems. Um, I'm definitely eager to please. And these traits have helped me in my business as a consultant where keeping clients happy is very good for business. So that's good. Um, in many ways in that regard, I'm a pretty good match for the oldest child characterization. So uh, being the oldest, I, as I said, there's three kids in my family. I'm the oldest of three. My sister is the middle child. She's three years younger than me. Very talented, very bright professional, CPA, um, successful mom, successful in her family, great family. Um, 
She's awesome. But I know uh, she always feels like she's in the shadow of her older brother. It's not my fault. <laughs> my brother Carl is 11 years younger than me. Um, and you know what? He's the affectionate one. He was always affectionate as a kid. He's definitely persistent, no question about it. And he has a great empathy for those around him. My brother loves people. Uh, everyone loves him, and it's because I think he loves everybody around him. And so when you take into these general characterizations into account, we know that's not sort of the whole story about who we are and whatever. They're just very general. Um, and all this kind of falls into that nature versus nurture debate. All very interesting. But it is an interesting lead-in to uh, our character Aaron, Moses' brother, who, again, he's a, he was a middle child. Maybe I don't have to talk about Aaron anymore. He's a middle child. That's all we need to say. But, um, but he was definitely a roll-of-the-punches kind of guy. He was loyal, good negotiator. But Aaron was also not only the middle child, but he's the firstborn son. So that puts a new twist to it. And there's a very, that was a very important and privileged position in the family to be the first, firstborn son. His older sister, Miriam, was about three years older. She tended to be, uh, I think, a perfectionist. She was driven. We can see that from what little we see from her in scriptures. And his parents, Amam and Jochebed, were from the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was the tribe from which the priests would come to minister to the nation of Israel and, and through which Israel would minister to God through the priesthood. And Aaron becomes, as we'll see later, be becomes the first high priest uh, in the order of Levi. So sometime after Aaron was born, Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, puts out this decree that all of the firstborn, not all of the male children uh, are to be killed. And so in the midst of that, Moses is born, and his parents hide him for several months. And you may be familiar with this story of how Moses' mother puts him in a basket, floats him down the Nile, and he gets... Um, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter who looks upon him as this beautiful child and wants to adopt him. The amazing thing is uh, Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, shows up at just the right time. She's working her way in there and convinces Pharaoh's daughter that there's a nursing mom that just happens to be available if she's looking for work. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter actually hires Moses' mom and pays her to um, nurse Moses. And so Moses' mom takes care of Moses until he's weaned, we don't know, maybe three years old, six years old, and he goes back into Pharaoh's household as Pharaoh's daughter's son. Get on? <laughs> so with the arrival of Moses, Aaron is now the middle child, and Moses is definitely getting a lot of attention, if you can imagine. He's been saved from a murder of a brutal king, who wanted to kill him, but oddly enough, he's been saved by Pharaoh's daughter. It's, an, it's amazing. So what do you think this does for Aaron's faith as he's growing up? Aaron's parents pushed Moses straight into the heart of the enemy, into the Egyptians. They did that, and they did that by faith. Um, and we don't know that from the story of Exodus, but we do see in Hebrews 11.23, which says this, by faith... Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Aaron clearly grew up in a house with parents of great faith 
and this no doubt shaped his character. So what else do we know about Aaron's childhood and about him growing up? Actually, not too much. I mean, the first thing that we just talked about, he grew up in a godly home. There's no doubt about that. But also, Aaron grew up in the context of rulership by the pharaoh, by the king of Egypt, who was clearly anti-Semitic. And there's a very um, oppressive atmosphere that Aaron grew up. And as Aaron's growing up in this and seeing what's going on with his, his fellow Israelites, he's looking across into the palace and seeing his brother Moses being reared by Pharaoh's daughter with all the privileges and honors of being a son of, or a grandson really, of Pharaoh. So that's all we know about Aaron growing up. We'll fast forward a long way from Aaron maybe being 10 years old or so to Aaron is now 83, Moses is 80, and God is specifically directing Aaron now. God shows up and tells Aaron, I want you to go out into the wilderness, and I want you to meet your brother Moses. So um, there's a scripture that speaks to now what's happening with Moses, who's also hearing from God. And Moses says in uh, Exodus 4.13, in response to God directing him to go to Egypt, Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else. Not the best way to respond to God when he's asking you to do something. And here's uh, the Lord's response. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform signs with it. So Moses had received instructions from God to go to Egypt but after protesting and pleading about slow speech and that he couldn't do it, God relents and he gives him Aaron, his brother, who is one who has excellent speech. And God tells Moses to head for Egypt and tells him that Aaron is already on the way. I love that. As, even as Moses is protesting to God, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. God's already sent Aaron on the way. I just love, I love that part of the story. So Moses and Aaron meet, and Moses tells all Aaron all about God's commission for them, what God has in store for them to confront Pharaoh and to set the people of Israel free and to, to bring them on to the next phase of, as a nation. And as they enter uh, into this mission and they start off to Egypt, we already know a little bit more about Aaron's character and who he is. First of all, he heard God's voice. That's pretty amazing in and of itself. And I wonder if, as God is giving Aaron instructions to head off to meet his brother, if God's already now beginning his preparation of Aaron for his role as high priest to come much later. Aaron listened and obeyed by, meeting to, uh, by um, going to meet Moses. He listened to God and obeyed. That speaks to his faithfulness and obedience. Then he listened to Moses and obeyed God's commands through Moses. This speaks to Aaron's humility, submitting not only to God's will, but submitting to Moses' will. And I think Aaron's humility stands out especially to me in this because he's the older brother. 
He's the firstborn. Moses is the baby. And yet Aaron is willing to come under submission to Moses' leadership. So now we go into Egypt with Moses and Aaron. And what are we going to learn about Aaron and his character there? So Moses and Aaron, they go in to confront Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron's first encounter with Pharaoh did not go well. So Aaron is the spokesman. He goes in front of Pharaoh and he says, let my people go so that we may worship in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. Not going to happen. And by the way, you coming here reminds me that you people are really lazy. And I think we need to step things up a little bit. And um, we've been providing all the straw for you to make bricks with. I don't think we're going to do that anymore. You need to go get your own straw, but still meet your quota of bricks. So this oppression that Pharaoh has over the people of Israel just increases by about five notches. And the people of Israel are not happy with Moses and Aaron. So what happens with them? The Israelites confront Moses and Aaron, and they say this, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're really upset with Moses and Aaron, but I love Moses and Aaron. They just keep shrudging forward. They don't back down. They keep moving forward in obedience to God's commands. And I think Aaron might have been a great encouragement to Moses here. Remember, Moses is the kind of guy who doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to do it. But Aaron is the kind of guy, hey, it rolls off his back. Come on, Moses, let's keep going. We can do this. I'm sure that Aaron was encouraging Moses to do this. As they go back to confront Pharaoh again, God tells them, hey, I'm going to bring these plagues upon Egypt. And you need to go tell Pharaoh these plagues are coming. So the first one is um, um, where Aaron confronts Pharaoh and he throws down the staff and it becomes a snake. I don't know if you remember that. Um, but it's interesting that it was Aaron that did that. We always think of Moses as the guy who confronts Pharaoh and throws the staff down and becomes a snake. But it was Aaron. And at Moses' direction, the first plague, Moses, uh, uh, Aaron stretches his hand over the waters and the Nile turns to blood. And then the, the next time they confront Pharaoh, Aaron puts his hand over the land and frogs come everywhere. And then again, the next time, Aaron stretches his hand over the land, at, again at Moses' direction, and gnats come out everywhere and infest the land. And this shows that Aaron has great courage. He's got great fortitude. He's got great faith. It's not easy to stand in front of Pharaoh with Moses behind you going, okay, go ahead and do this, right? You can do this. I'm like, really? It's easy for you to say. Stand in front of Pharaoh in his court with soldiers everywhere and to challenge Pharaoh and to do these things. So I think it shows tremendous courage on Aaron's part. So after uh, the Passover, the death of the firstborn through all of Egypt, um, Pharaoh relents. He lets Israel go from Egypt, and after 430 years of being in Egypt, Israel packs up and leaves, and they move, and they cross through the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea, and they go into the wilderness. Now, Moses gained a lot of confidence in Egypt, and he ended up being the one who confronted Pharaoh during the last half of the plagues. Um, and Moses is, is still the leader of the Israelites as they go into the wilderness. 
But Aaron's still the leader in practice. He's the one who's doing the most speaking and the most leading for the people of Israel. And this is a big deal because at that time, there's a million people. There's a lot of estimates to that number, but a million people moving into the wilderness. And Aaron must have been an exceptional leader to lead this crew into the wilderness. They're a pretty grumbling people. I don't know if you know the story, but uh, they get out into the wilderness, and the first thing they do after a couple of weeks of being a little hungry, they look at Moses and they say, you know, we had it a lot better in Egypt. We're hungry out here. What are you trying to do, kill us? We had pots of meat, and everything was awesome in Egypt. Let, we should go back. And, and Moses and Aaron are looking at like, it was only a few weeks ago. You forget how bad it was already. So God provides manna for the people to eat. And God's presence is with them in so many ways as they travel through the desert, right? There's the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And then as they move towards Mount Sinai, God's presence is on the mountain with storms and thunder and lightning and just fearful presence of God on the mountain. And it's here that Moses makes another of his many trips to meet God and to meet with God. And in the one trip where God, uh, Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, right? He's up on the mountain. And while Moses is gone, things are going on down in the camp. Aaron's in charge. What happens with Aaron? What's Aaron doing? Let's take a look at Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt... We don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Seriously? Really, after all that Moses and Aaron have been through, seeing the Lord work mightily over and over again, the plagues in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, God providing manna, water coming from a rock, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, Aaron decides it's time to make an idol? Well, it wasn't his idea, right? But he caved into prayer pressure very quickly. Why do you think this happened? Why did Aaron allow this to happen? I think the temptation of being number one was too great. Moses is gone. He's in charge. After all, he was the older brother, and it was his rightful place to be in charge. But really, this all comes down to pride, doesn't it? Pride leads Aaron to this outrageous sin against God. Idolatry, in God's eyes, is akin to adultery. It's like cheating on God. In redemption groups, we talk about this, and we talk about this kind of idolatry, this adultery before God is cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. And what's God's response to this? God's talking to Moses and says, I'm going to wipe these people off the planet. I'm going to take the nation of Israel and I'm going to destroy them so they exist no more. And Moses intervenes and he convinces God 
God, don't destroy Israel. Remember, you raised up Israel to be a witness for you to the nations. If you wipe, wipe them out, they're not going to be that good of a witness anymore. Just saying. God relents, and Moses' intervention uh, is successful. And this intervention is actually a foreshadowing of Christ's constant intervention to us. Moses is a Christ type, and so we can see that in this example. But Moses confronts Aaron about this golden calf incident, and Aaron's response to Moses is laughable. Take a look at this, Exodus 32, 21 to 24. Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Can you imagine Moses' face? Really? Seriously? I think you're lying to me. Like, this, you know, Aaron lied right in Moses' face. Not a good time in Aaron's life. He led the people of Israel astray in a major way. Aaron had a couple of other notable uh, moments where pride entered in. I'll just hit on quickly. Uh, years later, um, Aaron and his sister Miriam are grumbling against Moses. They're gossiping quite bitterly, actually. God's response was to strike Miriam with leprosy. And that opened Aaron's eyes, I can tell you. And he went before God. He re repented and asked God to cure Miriam, which God did. He sent Miriam outside the camp for a week, and she was cured when she came back. At the end of his life, Aaron is implicated with Moses in the incident at Meribah. Um, and what happened at Meribah was they got to this place. And remember, there's a million people. They need food. They need water. They have manna. But um, there's no water at this place. And so the people are thirsty. They're grumbling again and complaining. And God says to Moses and Aaron, Moses, speak to the rock, and water will come out. So... Um, Moses and Aaron gather all the people, and they get up in front of the rock, and Moses takes out his staff, and he hits the rock twice in dramatic fashion, and the water comes out. It's very, very cool. Except God was not pleased because they did not obey. They hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, which robbed God of the glory of the moment. And in Numbers 20, verses 12, this is what uh, the Lord said. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So Aaron was implicated in this as well because he heard the instructions with Moses from God, and neither of them got to go into the promised land as a result of this. Aaron definitely had a strong sense of humility as he served alongside Moses, and he had a very submissive role to play before Moses, but sometimes his pride got the better of him. Pride was never too far away from him. 
So let's talk for a bit about God's grace. Aaron stood guilty of cosmic treason before God after having led them into idolatry and, and following the idolatry was this hedonistic revelry that was going on. It was very, very uh, terrible time. But God pardons Aaron in all of this, despite the community still having to suffer some consequences, Aaron is pardoned. And here's an amazing thing that happened later, years after that incident. God makes Aaron the first high priest. Out of the million people that he could have chosen to minister to him in the Holy of Holies, to become the first high priest, he chooses Aaron. Aaron is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. This is amazing. And this is not just an impersonal role or a, a, a titled position that Aaron would hold. This is a position where God is choosing him to have a relationship with him, to meet with him in the Holy of Holies, to be the one who comes into his presence. This is true grace. When you think about grace, think about what God did from, for Aaron, taking this horrific sinner and making him the high priest over Israel, the chosen one. In Hebrews, it says that uh, his priesthood was a shadow of heavenly things to come and was intended to lead the people of Israel to look forward to another priest that was to come, Jesus. Not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus would come as a new high priest. Let's take a look again then at uh, Aaron's character traits as we've seen them develop in the story so far. Aaron is obedient, he's faithful, he's humble, he's courageous, he's very strong, he's a great leader and an excellent speaker, but he's also prideful. And that pride, again, wipes out obedience. It wipes out humility, pride, wipes out faithfulness. But yet, Aaron kept coming back to God and kept walking with God and kept his relationship with Moses and God moving forward. And so while Moses is a foreshadowing of Christ, Aaron is a foreshadowing of what it means to be a disciple under Christ. He's a foreshadow foreshadowing of discipleship under Christ. Let's compare Aaron and Moses and, and, and us and Jesus. Aaron followed Moses. He sat under Moses' wisdom, and he obeyed his commands. Likewise, we are meant to follow Jesus, to sit under the wisdom of Jesus and under the wisdom of the word, and to obey his commands. Aaron had a close relationship with Moses. He called Moses Lord, as we saw a minute ago, but he was also a brother and a friend. We too can have a relationship with Jesus as Lord, brother, and friend. Again, a picture of discipleship. And when Aaron obeyed Moses, there was a lot of fruit. Whenever Aaron obeyed Moses, good things happen. When we obey Jesus, there will always be fruit likewise. This is a great picture of discipleship. So what can we take away from all of this that we can now begin to apply to our lives. Obviously, the picture of discipleship is interesting. There are many factors that shape our characters, right? 
But the one thing we need to remember, the one thing that really shapes our character is our identity. Our identity shapes who we are. Our sense of who we are shapes our character. Aaron consistently overcame his issues by identifying himself with God. Whenever he was submitting to God, whenever he was walking with God, whenever he was hearing from God, things were going well with Moses. Uh, sorry, with Aaron, sorry. Despite his sin, Aaron became the high priest. Despite his sin, Aaron became the high priest. He was chosen. He was anointed. He spoke with God. He had a relationship with God. And so the key takeaway I want for us this morning is to realize, for us to realize that we, as believers, are high priests. If you're a born-again believer, you're a high priest. Maybe you don't believe me. I'll bring you to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if we jump ahead to Revelations chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to, be him, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen? But you say, high priest, that can't apply to me. I'm just a regular person. I'm still a sinner. I'm still a goofball. Aaron was chosen as a high priest, one out of a million. What makes you think I can be any better than one out of a million? How can this apply to me? Maybe Michael Davis can be high priest. Or Paul, maybe you can be high priest. You're an elder of the church. You can be a priest. But not me. But I have a challenge for you this morning. If that's where you are, and you're saying that in all humility, I have a wake-up call for you. That is false humility. And false humility is what? Pride. Consider this from Oswald Chambers, from Utmost for His Highest, which speaks to this. It says, pride is the sin of making self our God. For you to say, oh, I'm no saint, priest, is acceptable by human standards of pride. But it is unconscious blasphemy against God. You defy God to make you a saint, as if to say, I am too weak, I'm too hopeless, and I'm outside of the reach of the atonement of the cross of Christ. Sit with that for a minute if you think you are too hopeless to be redeemed by Christ. 
And if you use the one in a million argument, you're completely missing the mystery of the body of Christ. Take a look at Colossians 1, 24 to 27. One of my favorite verses. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people is this. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're a born-again believer, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the whole point is this. Yes, Aaron was one in a million. The high priest was one, trying to impact a million. Impossible. He was one in a million. But if you think about Jesus, it, it was similar for him. He came onto the earth, into the earth as a man, and he was one, walking as priest, right, walking in power, but still one person trying to impact millions. And the mystery of the gospel is this, is that we, the millions of us believers in the world, we become like Aaron through Christ. We become high priests. We become like Aaron. We can walk like Aaron in his office of high priest and become like Jesus. The mystery and the power of that message, that mystery, the power of the gospel is that we if we just impact a few, if each one of you here in this room just impact a few, we reach millions upon millions. Aaron couldn't have done that. Jesus, in his finite nature as a man here on earth, couldn't do that. But we as the body of Christ, we can do that, and it depends on you. Oswald Chambers had one other thing to say in this regard. We are not meant to be seen as God's perfect, bright, and shining examples, but to be seen as the everyday essence of ordinary life, exhibiting the miracle of his grace. Drudgery is the test of genuine character. Are we to be walking like priests, to be walking like Christ? Yes. Does that mean we're on a pedestal somewhere? You know, no. That gets worked out every day in our jobs, at school, wherever we are. We walk that out, and our character is shaped as we allow God to work in us and through us as we walk with him. God is ready and willing to receive us into his presence as high priests. Personally, my character is being shaped, there's no doubt about it, by two things, by my identity in Christ, who I am in him. That shapes a lot of who I have become. And the second thing that's been shaping my character is my willingness to embrace the role of high priest, my willingness to walk in the power and the presence of God. That will change you. 
As a result, some of my firstborn characteristics that I have are starting to fade. I'm a perfectionist by nature. But you know what? I'm learning to roll with it. I'm taking on those middle child characteristics. I am. I'm learning to roll with it. I'm not, you know, God's in charge. Control. I have learned that God is in control. I do what I can. But when it comes to ministry especially, it's all his. Redemption groups, for example, the Lord's in control. It's the Lord who heals. It's the Lord who sets people free. I can't do that. I have no control over that. But our job as priests, our job as walking with Christ is very simple. It's just to point people to Jesus so that he can do his work in them. As an elder of Genesis, I just feel my, my biggest role here is just to point people to Jesus because he has the answers and he has the power to set us free. We can do this by receiving power and the wisdom that comes from sitting in his word and in his presence. And sitting in God's presence is what being a high priest is all about, right? Aaron was a high priest. He had the privilege of going into God's presence. With us, with Christ, the veil in the Holy of Holies has been torn we have the ability to enter in. As we were singing the hymn earlier, as Josh was leading us, the cross before me, the world behind me. I think the real power of Christ is taking that as the strength and then flipping it around. The cross before me, the world behind me, we flip that around the cross behind me and the world before me. I'm going to go into the world as a priest in all the power of the cross and all the power of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And I pray that you'll do the same. Let's pray.